The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson. As we are recording this podcast, Jim is at home in Nashville. I am in Cincinnati. So this is a remote podcast episode as we get prepared for our Hashtag 1080 Road Trip, co-hosted along with our friends from the 108 in Cincinnati this weekend as the Chicago White Sox come into town to face the Cincinnati Reds. We're going to preview that series and talk about the event that we're going to be hosting this weekend. But there's also some White Sox news to recap. They finally won a series. They finally won back-to-back games. They had a mini winning streak there. Uh, But unfortunately, they lost the getaway day when they had a chance to sweep the Minnesota Twins. Again, we'll recap that uh, that particular series. And uh, Jerry Reinsdorf speaks. It's been a while since we've heard from him as he plays his greatest tracks in a recent press conference, or I should say a panel about sports business out in Los Angeles. So let's go ahead and get this episode started, this uh, special edition remote episode. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, hello from Cincinnati. And uh, it was a lovely drive from Chicago. And we are going to have absolutely awesome weather uh, have already been here. It's in the mid-70s. It's going to be the mid-70s, maybe hit 80 over this weekend, and I'm pretty pumped for this weekend's event. That doesn't sound like chilly weather to me. Uh, no, no, it is. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would not, I would not consider that chilly weather. Now, everyone's been telling me I got to get the skyline chilly, and you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for the clout. Mm-hmm. So if you follow us on Twitter, we're at Socks Machine. I'm at Socks Machine underscore Josh. Uh, on the Instagram as well. Those are our handles. So I will videotape myself. I, I don't think I'm going to get the plate of chili, though, because the chili and the, I assume, a pound of shredded cheddar cheese on top of spaghetti doesn't sound appetizing, but I do like myself a chili dog. I, I think that's the vessel I'm going to go in the direction when it comes to the Skyline Chili, Jim. Don't you have to do the pasta, though? I mean, for the true experience. I, I just, I can't. It's too weird. It sounds, Chili on it spaghetti, sounds really spaghetti. moist. Like that's the word <laughs> oh, that comes God. to mind. Oh, God. 
Just some moist chili on some moist pasta with some moist cheese. Moist, moist, moist. Oh, man. As our podcast listener, I think our average listener is going to be way lower because people just turn it <laughs> off when I kept saying moist. Uh, it's getting there. It is getting there. But a lot of White Sox fans are arriving on Friday, so we're having two meetups. So if you're listening to this and you decide, you know what, I'm going to change my mind or... I was planning going to Cincinnati, but I forgot to tell Jim and Josh that I'll be there this weekend. So we're having two meetups. So Friday, the meetup is at a bar called the Holy Grail Tavern. It's literally across the street from Great American Ballpark. Uh, we're going to start meeting up there around 4 p.m. Eastern time because, again, Cincinnati is in the Eastern time zone. So you'll have to get adjusted for all those coming from Chicago. And if you arrive late, you arrive late. We're just going to be hanging out. Uh, we're all learning here as far as what Cincinnati has to offer. Uh, and then we'll be meeting up at another brewery on Saturday just down the street as well. We have some table reservations. And again, we will plug these uh, on social media through at Sox Machine, at Sox Machine under Squash. And also follow our friends at from the 108 as well on Twitter as we push out that information. And also the, the post-game plans as well as if you got a chance to attend last year's road trip in Minneapolis, the, the post game was a lot of fun. And we'll, we'll talk more about the White Sox and Red Series here in Cincinnati later in the show. But when it comes to White Sox news, Jim, you know, for this midweek podcast, there's actually quite a bit to talk about when it comes to the White Sox news. And we'll get into the White Sox making 11 player roster move, uh, mm -hmm. which has got to be some type of record. But Jerry Reinsdorf, Jim, he spoke on a panel about sports business with, uh, I believe it was Rachel Nichols that was mm -hmm. hosting it. And uh, Jim, Jerry Reinsdorf continues to play his greatest hits from the mid-90s. And uh, I don't think it was a good idea for him to bring up those greatest hits. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to Jerry Reinsdorf, on one hand, you should say, speak, speak more. We don't hear from him much, even if it's not very flattering or reflects on him and the organization poorly to speak. Like, it's good to know exactly what you're dealing with. Good to know nothing has changed. For instance, with the David Sampson um, podcast a few years ago, where he talked about how Jerry Reinsdorf said that the best thing to do is finish in second because you tease your fans, but you don't actually have expectations of of doing more and spending more. And his spokesman, uh, Reinsdorf spokesman said, you know, he doesn't recall saying that. And he has an unquenchable thirst for championships. And if you're not like the second place, the first loser, which struck my ear funny, turns out it was a no fear t-shirt. Like I reflexively said, that sounds like a no fear t-shirt. Then I found one on eBay. Sure enough, no fear t-shirt from, I don't know, 1990s. So, you know, when, when Reinsdorf speaks and he says something very similar, which is like, you know, second and third and fourth place can be a successful season. Uh, it does render the party line, um, you just meaningless, which is, it's good to know that you can't necessarily trust what the White Sox are saying, uh, what anybody around him is saying, like when it comes to speaking for Jerry Reinsdorf. So on one hand, you know, good that he said that good that we, generally have a sense of how he operates and that hasn't changed. On the other hand, like, you know, speaking, if I were speaking from the perspective of the organization, it did not help. Um, you know, and it was very small too. Like he was the only, I believe he was the only representative of a major four sports franchise, right? I think the rest right. were soccer and, uh, WNBA, I think. And, um, you know, it would seem like, it, you know, the, the stage, you know, was not, 
um, necessarily like a great place for him to be in terms of like, oh, he's rubbing elbows with, you know, peers, like they're smaller operations he's talking with. And then like, he just goes about looking very small, talking about how, you know, talking about like a $42 million second baseman who's hitting 202 or something like that and complaining about, um, or, or saying like, you know, that the, we made a killing with cable rights and now we're not anymore. And it's like, well, if you're making a killing cable rights, how come that money didn't go in the team? Just, it was a stage, like, it didn't seem like he should have spoke on it. Like there, there was no reason to, in terms of clout, in terms of reputation, in terms of standing, like he wasn't there with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers and the, uh, like, yeah, I guess he, the Lakers or the, yeah, just, you know, the, pinnacle of other leagues, the Cowboys, et cetera, to where like, you know, the, the White Sox are peers with the Dallas Cowboys. Like they were all smaller operations and the White Sox were definitely the biggest and, you know, Reinsdorf acted very small. So I don't get why he did it. Um, it, it certainly didn't um, reflect well on him or the organization, but at least we know the deal. He's 87 years old. I'm sure he got flattered to be invited to talk about the business of sports. And when he talks about the business of sports, it can be enlightening. Again, he's owned a major franchise since 1981 uh, with the Chicago White Sox a few years later, buys the Chicago Bulls. I'm sure he's got good stories, but the one thing that caught my attention is when he talks about how he doesn't want to make any money. Like that's not his big driver in being a professional sports owner. He wants to win. He just wait five minutes and Jerry Reinsdorf is going to contradict himself after he says that. No matter mm -hmm. what future events that he does when he talks about all I want to do is just win. That's technically true, I guess, to a point, Jerry. The reality is you want to win on your terms. And no one mm -hmm. really pushes him back because if I was moderating that, I would have asked Jerry the $100 million contracts – Pittsburgh Pirates just signed Brian Reynolds to a $100 million, $100 million contract. Your organization throughout your tenorship has not done that. You're one of like three remaining. Why is that the case? Well, why are you so reluctant from spending the top dollar on the premium talent? And and push, him, push back a little bit, but Rachel Nichols is not mm -hmm. going to do that. I don't think any panel is going to do that because if you push Jerry Reinsdorf at all, uh, he probably never speaks to you again. I'm sure there'll never be a 30 for 30 on Jerry Reinsdorf after what transpired with the last dance documentary about the Chicago bulls. So it, it just, uh, it, it, if you had hope that Jerry Reinsdorf is paying attention to what's happening with this baseball team, being at 10 and 22 and thinking he's going to snap out of it, and rain hellfire on Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn's desk and maybe forces one of those guys out and makes a dramatic change or a turn of events on how this franchise is operated. From that panel earlier this week in Los Angeles, I think all arrows point to Jim. That's not happening. Yeah, and, you know, he also, you know, he's not in, uh, you know, being on a panel where he was the only MLB or NBA owner on that panel like he could rehash the line that he mentioned in uh lords of the realm where he talked about how baseball is the only industry where i have to pay someone my dumbest competitor pays and you know he uh you know back in that book which covered like the 80s and the 90s and you know reinsdorf's role in uh collusion and the strike and whatnot and you know he was very 
like when he arrived on the scene in the 1980s, like he was pretty shrewd in terms of like figuring out like some ways to uh, pay players through arbitration, guarantee him slightly more, but then ultimately cap their pay that owners ultimately like followed his lead on. Like he had some fresh ideas to uh, help suppress the cost of labor that uh, you know, were legal or like, you know, above the board, even if questionable, like then collusion happened. That certainly wasn't legal. And, and, and they certainly got uh, smacked down for that, but he had some ideas in terms of, you know um, what other owners hadn't thought of, but the game has passed him by. Like, you know, he's no longer on equal footing with those. It's kind of like the Will Ponds with the Mets, um, you know, late in their tenureship after the Bernie Madoff thing where they lost, you know, a lot of their fortune and just were, they were small. The big markets, uh, small-minded uh, owner. Yeah, and in the case of Will Ponds, it's plural, so owners. But that's kind of what we're looking at here. And he's still operating in the case of like, you know, that, you know, free agents are, you know, inefficient spending and irrational spending. And I think Dan Bernstein said, like, yeah, sports is rational. Like, there's no reason why we should have our happiness and interest uh, be at the mercy of uh, people who, um, you know, don't listen to us or we have no control over. We have no control over Tim Anderson, Tim Anderson swinging at the first pitch with a runner on third and a breaking ball. It's low and out of the zone. And, and, and that makes us unhappy. Like, that's not rational. We should have uh, we should invest our emotions in something that uh, uh, we have direct control over. But that's the game. You know, it's about entertainment entertainment sometimes requires risks and Reinsdorf does not have the appetite to take them so if he had a better front office like and that's the other thing that's uh, counterintuitive is that you know if he wants to win under certain circumstances only like the the line I always come back to is the scar aficionado profile from 1995 where he said throughout the fall and winter he was still driven by the dream to create a world series winner in a business climate that made sense to him and I, I imagine that's like cigar aficionado talk for cheap, you know, given you know what the magazine's clientele is that, you know, just, you know, well, uh, you know, just, you know, it's a case of uh, throwing a little bit of shade there in 1995. But, you know, if he were truly um, mindful of that and wanted to win, had the appetite to win, he would look like the Guardians or he would look like the Rays, just, you know, um, Firing Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, overhauling the front office, because even if you order uh, up an army of analysts uh, like the Rays have, like that's still cheaper than paying that $100 million contract he doesn't want to pay. So like there are ways to have that uh, fervent desire to win that does not involve spending money. He just he's comfortable like he, he doesn't see any reason like the. The money's coming in, the franchise value is going up more or less, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a blip right now with the economy being weird and everything like that with the RSNs, but just like he's made, I don't know how many, yeah, time, how many fold on his initial investment to where like, you know, who cares about the year to year fluctuations in value. It just, he's, he's comfortable and he's 87 set in his ways. He's won a world series. He's won six titles in the NBA. Like he's got what he wants. Um, you know, most of the time, uh, somebody in that position, if we're just a job, like a, a normal CEO job, he would retire. Like he'd say like, uh, oh, you know, my heart's not anymore. Uh, the shareholders would say like, uh, oh, give up the, you know, give it up. You'll be like, a um, you know, at large, you'll be CEO at large or like advisor consultant, um, you know, that sort of thing. But given that he's the chairman and has controlling interests, like nobody can, oust him and, and just everybody on the board is pretty much as old as he is. So like, it just, it's, it's stasis. Yeah. I think the youngest person on the board of the, for the Chicago white Sox out of the, not the minority owners, but the 
the board. It's like 75 years old. Last I checked, yeah. uh, it's it's a bunch of old white dudes that are on the Chicago White Sox board. And uh, obviously, it's not going to make anyone feel better. So, again, Jerry Reinsdorf speaks, and you talk about his the, what the White Sox front office and the risks that they take. They've taken a lot of risks this week. Maybe a move that really smells like desperation. Before the Twin Series, they made 11 roster moves. They sent down Oscar Colas and Lenin Sosa. Then Lenin Sosa's got to come up. So really, they made 12 roster moves this week as 13. Jay Berger went on the injury list. What was the 13th? Well, no. Well, Berger coming back or Berger going in the IL would be a roster move. Then Sosa coming up would be another roster move. Got it. Okay. So a total of 13 roster moves <laughs> uh, in the last three days. Uh, I, I'm saddened Jake Diekman has been DFA'd. Uh, I think we could spend just an hour yeah. uh, on all these roster moves. But with all these roster moves, and obviously Tim Anderson returning and Hanser Alberto returning, we, we knew that they would be returning for this series. None is standing out as far as providing an immediate impact and a little bit of curiosity on how Pedro Gafal is managing his job, Jim. Then Billy Hamilton. And I, I think Billy Hamilton showed in the White Sox lost on Thursday. He can't hit. However, God, no. in late game situations, eighth or ninth inning, him pinch running can really change the momentum and how those high leverage innings play out for the White Sox offensively, at least giving them a better opportunity in scoring runs late. What do you make of the usage of Billy Hamilton so far since he's rejoined the White Sox? I think by and large, it's instructive. I would say in terms of like, if the de- something like the designated runner uh, that they're trying out in the Atlantic league this year would ever come to major league baseball, you have some idea of what kind of impact he can make. Um, on the other hand, watching his two at bats on uh, <laughs> Thursday uh, t- uh, today, where he's, you know, has to bunt because he doesn't like his chances of swinging the bat pops it up with two outs. You know, it wasn't even like a, a squeeze of the one out where he can, you know, somebody else can, you know, he's passing the buck to somebody else. Nope. It was, it was a two outs and he popped it up. Then just the second at bat has to swing the bat strikes out non-competitive swings. You know, when Hamilton made the difference, when he scored that uh, insurance run on Wednesday, you know, I saw a lot, a lot of tweets saying like, oh, he should have been on the roster all year. Why didn't he break camp? And then like those two swings or those two at bats were why? Because there is a very limited function he serves and it's really cool when it works. But as we're seeing with like Pedro Griffal and his late inning moves to try to protect leads where Gavin Sheets goes out and Adam Hazley comes in because the state of the bullpen is uncertain right now. And also because like the White Sox offense is banged up and isn't great at supplementing leads. Griffal's adapted or, or adopted, I should say this, this very conservative mindset in terms of like, we have to protect these leads. So Gavin Sheets goes out like the sixth or the seventh inning, Adam Hazley comes in. And then because Reynaldo Lopez gives up a game tying Homer, like, uh, yeah, I made a joke on Twitter saying that defensive replacements who have to hit for themselves in high leverage situations later in the game should wear like a different Jersey, like in soccer or something like that, just like a bright fluorescent Jersey, uh, um, or, or kind of like in a, uh, you know, like a, a war zone to where it's just like, here are the, uh, UN inspectors, uh, take it easy on them because they're not supposed to, you know, <laughs> they, they weren't part of the original plan here. Um, but, but we've seen that a lot this year with Griffal, just 
defensive replacements having to hit for themselves because the bullpen uh, ruins the original plans or because the just it you have to hold on to your butt. So when the White Sox have one run lead because it's not going to get to two runs unless something crazy like Billy Hamilton happens to where he can score that run by, uh, you know, moving from second on a grounder to short. Like that's it takes special circumstances for the White Sox to pad a lead like a normal team. So on one hand, Hamilton helps. But on the other hand, like if the original plan doesn't work of Hamilton scoring and Hamilton has to hit for himself, it is not good. Like, you know, it, it, he's very much a single purpose kitchen implement. And if you, uh, you know, if, if you have room in your cupboard or a counter, like fine. But uh, if you're working in a very cramped space and you need every you know possible uh, roster spot to uh, you know maximize every roster spot, like he is not it. Pedro Grafal in our last episode, I referenced Shark Tank. I am out. In this series against the Minnesota Twins, Jim, he reminds me of a little league coach that must play everyone mm-hmm. on the bench, or he will hear it from those players' parents, and he does not want to hear it from those players' parents, so he must play every position player, every game. And that's the way it feels. Like I think multiple times in this series, he either emptied out his bench or almost emptied out the bench. Maybe Sebi Zavala was the last bench player that he had. I'm glad you bring up the Gavin Sheets example. I think he's pulling Gavin Sheets way too early uh, for defensive replacements. And the reason is, is that because Grafal, bless his heart, Trust this White Sox bullpen way too much. And I get it, right? As a manager, you want to show some faith in that unit and prove it to them that with my decision-making and the way that I'm handling the position players, I'm counting on you guys to do your job. At some point, he needs to start hedging as a manager. And I'm making this move preparing for the bullpen to not do their job. If they do their job, then I still have these moves in my back pocket for the eighth and ninth inning. But I think he's just a little too aggressive right now, pulling position players or putting in defensive replacements in the sixth and seventh inning, which, you know, Adam Hazley is a better outfielder, Jim, than Gavin Sheets. But Adam Hazley can't jump 10 rows into the bleachers to rob home runs, and that's a big problem. What if he could? If only he could. But that's a big problem with this White Sox bullpen. It's just you can't trust them. And as you point out, when they blow up, it just blows up all of Grafal's plans. And I feel like as a rookie manager, he's showing a little too much faith in the White Sox bullpen. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that, you know, he's – showing too much faith. Like you could say, if you're trying to appeal to Griffal to change his ways, you could say like one way to show faith in your bullpen is by not going to the defensive subs super early because like you don't need every ounce, like our bullpen's good enough to where we don't need every ounce of range in right field to get through an inning, you know, to get through a seventh inning. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I could see it that way to where like you can get the strikeout. You can get the easy to catch contact in right field. We don't need to max it out in the seventh and the ninth. Sure. Uh, When, you know, if the, player has to come to the bat in the 10th inning sure you can you can plan around that like or or you can't necessarily plan around that but just like that's a case where you had three outs to get bullpen didn't do his job when you're talking about like nine outs and we we're talking about that spot in the order definitely coming back up to the plate and, and losing your flexibility because adam hazley got subbed out he caught one ball or did he catch it or did uh, Luis robert catch it in front of him another case where like robert did not call for it like now robert's nearly run into um 
Eloy is nearly Everyone. running to Gavin Sheets. Now he's like, he basically just, everybody's learning like that. He just works in silence, um, like a, like a monk or something like that in center field. But that, that's kind of how I'd look at it is just, you know, when you're, uh, going to the defensive subs that early, you're not showing much faith in your bullpen. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of like, just trying to like stack up all these dominoes in a perfect order for this very long, satisfying, uh, roll of clacks. And then there's just like a dog walking around that all of a sudden can knock it over any time and make you start all over again. And that's kind of what it reminds like the, the bullpen or just like the white Sox general are that, you know, big clumsy dog that's going to, uh, make you wonder why did you th- overthink this? Why did you think that you could possibly mm-hmm. arrange all these things imperfectly perfectly uh, over the course of 15 minutes before the dog came and knocked over, uh, knocked everything over. So that's kind of how I look at it is just, he's overthinking it because, you know, he, this is his first job. It's gone terribly. And you don't want to be asleep at the wheel. Like I understand the impulse, you know, he can't be playing out there, but he can mash every button to try to, get wins for his team and, and try to put players in the perfect uh, place to succeed. But when you only have uh, four bench spots and when you only have uh, you know, like four available relievers in a certain game, like your moves are mm-hmm. finite. So, you know, you, you can't like sub Gavin sheets back in if he subbed out, which he knows, but I, but I think like just his, uh, his frame of reference looks like it's, you know, he's thinking about like one inning, when maybe you should like think of three and what happens if this raw, if this batting spot order comes around again and we need that run, do we really want Billy Hamilton right. hitting? Do we really want Adam Hazley hitting? Uh, could we have gotten by with sheets and right field for one more inning? That sort of thing. Yeah. I would just recommend that he waits until the top of the ninth inning, especially when you're playing these home games, wait until then we've seen Ozzy do this when Ozzy managed and had the defense replacements come in. That's more common. I just, I feel like sending out defensive replacements, swapping out guys the seventh inning, it's just too aggressive. And it just, again, it gives me the feeling that he's a little league coach right now. He's got to play everyone on the bench every single game when I, I hope he moves away from that. Again, I understand the defensive replacement strategy. I understand using Billy Hamilton to pinch run for someone like Yasmani Grandal when it's a one-run game and you want that extra run. You can send out Sabi Zavala to catch in the ninth inning. But we'll see in how Grafal handles this moving forward. But that's one thing that I've noticed as of late is he is very aggressive uh, in using the bench players. And uh, it's putting the White Sox in some odd spots, especially late in two games. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's talk about something positive that caught my attention. Eloy Jimenez is starting to get on track for the White Sox, and he is again showing some life. We've seen this before earlier in the season. He had a monster series in St. Petersburg, Florida against the Tampa Bay Rays and then went quiet again. But in the last week, Eloy Jimenez is 12 for 24 hitting Jim with two home runs and eight RBIs. He's got three walks and he's got three strikeouts. And this is really needed. If you want to nitpick on Grafal again, his lineup construction is a bit odd as well as of late, but it definitely makes the decision-making a lot easier when Eloy Jimenez is actually hitting like a cleanup hitter, especially in the last week. From what you have seen from Eloy, is this something that is sustainable and he can maintain this type of hitting away from guaranteed Ray Field as the White Sox embark on this road trip? You'd like to think so, but like the, the contact's getting louder. Like it's, you know, it's consistently firm. Like even the ground balls have purpose to him. He's not rolling things over. So, you know, when you look at his, you know, swing profile and such, I was getting a little nervous about, um, same handed changeups, uh, you righty, righty changeups were giving him fits. I think they still are just, you know, that's the one weakness I see. And the one way that I can see opponents like attacking him and getting some ugly swings, getting some, some top balls, grounders, left side, double play balls, et cetera. But everything else seems like it's pretty firm. And I think the number of pitchers who have confidence in their changeup to throw it against righties is a pretty small uh, portion of the population. So that's really the one thing that jumped out to me is just, he seems like yeah, pitches fading inside, doesn't cover those very well, gets way out in front, swings through them. But, uh, you know, Hunter Green, like so Hunter Green coming up, throwing fastballs, like I think he can handle something like Hunter Green. It's the, like, I think Grayson Rodriguez was the guy who just like it worked him over with that with that same righty-righty changeup uh, Pablo Lopez did as well. And those are the two guys who said like, ooh, that's, that's a flaw. And once in a while it happens, but I, I think the number of pitchers who – can do that is fairly small. So uh, as long as he can stay in the lineup, which, you know, as we saw Jake Berger go on the injured list, as we saw, um, you know, Tim Anderson, you know, need a day off and then look like he should have had the whole day off afterwards. Like I don't count on anybody staying healthy on this roster, especially somebody who's been hurt before, but right now he looks like he's fully functional and they certainly are going through all the other outfielders possible to where like that's one uh, fewer way he can hurt himself on the uh, on the field, even if he plays it like you know once a week, which he might like. Uh, just they're trying to keep him in the lineup, and he's trying to contribute. And so far, that part's going well. It's just when you have a lineup like uh, Thursdays, where the last four spots in the order are, are all hitting under 200, and basically after the fifth spot, it dries up in a hurry. And then if you you know swap out a guy for a defensive replacement, that gets you know there are some bare patches up top. Uh, that gets messy. So, you know, it, it's great that he's producing because right now with Berger out and with Moncada, I guess he's going to be going on a, a rehab stint soon, but you know, can't count on him coming back yet necessarily. Like, um, they're going to need it because this lineup ends in a hurry. Yeah. With the Yohan Makata news, he could be joining Liam Hendricks in Gwinnett, Georgia as the Charlotte Knights face the Gwinnett Stripers. And obviously the White Sox got terrific news that Liam Hendricks had his press conference and he talked about his process beating cancer and now his process of returning to the White Sox. So back again to the White Sox bullpen help could be coming 
We'll see on how things go for Liam Hendricks. His body has already gone through so much to beat stage four uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, that's already a great ordeal. Let's see on how long it takes for Liam Hendricks to get back into playing shape and rejoin the Chicago White Sox. On the offensive front, Andrew Vaughn's having a good week as well. He's 7 for 21 with two homers, five walks, and six strikeouts for Andrew Vaughn. On the pitching side, two pitchers that I want to talk about real quick here on the starting front. Okay. Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito. Dylan Cease is really struggling at home, Jim. Now it's four starts at home to start the season for Dylan Cease. It's a 5.85 ERA at guarantee rate field. And this is odd because in his entire career before this season, he's been very good at guarantee rate field. He was very good at guarantee rate field last year in 18 starts with like a 2.3 ERA. And in his four starts, he's averaging five innings per start just 20 innings pitched. That's not good enough. 22 strikeouts is okay, but 16 walks. So this is a concern and just how poorly Dylan Cease is pitching at home. Lucas Giolito is the opposite. Now three starts at guarantee Ray Field after going seven innings on Thursday against the Minnesota Twins. Giolito's got a 1.37 ERA at home. 19.2 innings pitched. So he's he has one fewer out in one fewer start than Dylan sees just 10 hits allowed in four walks. So only 14 base runners have reached in 19 and two thirds innings at home. And Giolito's got 20 strikeouts. And again, with that low ERA, he's only allowed three earned runs. And I also bring his stats up because Mark Fine said of MLB.com after the month of April ran his MLB executive survey and Lucas Giolito got the most votes from other MLB executives on the player most likely to be traded before the deadline. So with the way they've been pitching at home and to start this season, I had a feeling that Lucas Giolito was going to step up his game, but I still believe that Dylan Cease could be one of the Cy Young contenders in the American League. Any idea on what is working for Giolito and what's not working for Cease, Jim, especially at home? Well, Giolito, I think the slider has stepped up. The fastball velocity, you know, maybe isn't what it was when it was like, you know, 94, 95 with the spin rate that he had, which was, you know, sticky stuff did play a part in it. Um, but also, you know, the extra ticking velocity helps too, because that corresponds with spin rate. So, you know, he's now like 93, 94, but he's consistently there. It's not like fluctuating down to like 90, 91. And all of a sudden, like he needs to try to slider his way out of an inning and the changeup doesn't work. The fastball has stabilized, so that gives him like a good, reliable base to work with. And then like he can mix it up depending on like whether he's facing more righties or lefties. And he showed the ability like the the twins did bring righties to the lineup. They did try to um, cancel out that changeup by having more righties, even though they'd probably play more lefties normally with a right-handed starter. And then he went to the slider. He threw that like three times as often as he threw his changeup and that pitch really worked. So, you know, the, the power is there uh, on a reliable basis. He knows what he's working with. And the slider has stepped up as like a nice secondary pitch. You know, maybe not like the cease grade slider, but it's there with cease. It's uh, I, I think he's dealing with a little bit of Giolito stuff in terms of like the power, you know, you normally say like 96, 97 on fastball is good, but like, you know, sometimes you know, he'd be able to hit 98, 99. So like the fastball isn't 
maxed out yet. And, you know, the weather's been a little bit, you know, on the chillier side and such. So like uh, you know, a lot of guys have been dealing with down velocity, but when it comes to the slider, he's throwing it as often as he did before. I think the league can plan for it a little bit better. And the, you know, the command is worse. Like he's throwing, he's, he's throwing less competitive sliders. Um, he's getting behind in counts. Like it, it's a case where he's a little bit easier to plan for, whether it's because they know a little bit more about him and they know like, oh yeah, he will throw his slider 50% of the time. Or it's because like he's down 2-0 again and either it needs to come back with a fastball or we're just looking one location. So the slider is still having nice returns for him, but not like best pitch in baseball returns like it had last year. So something needs to come up, whether it's the uh, number of strikes being thrown, whether it's the fastball velocity, or whether it's just like the perfect execution of the slider that he had for long stretches of last year. I think to get back to like Cy Young finalist form. Otherwise, he's just kind of like a good... Yeah, I would say like a third starter right now with his current form, like walking way too many guys and the strikeouts aren't elite and it's fine. But when Lance Lynn is struggling, when Michael Kopech, although Kopech had a nice turn last time out, but like when you're not having that, you know, when you're lacking like the other number two starter, you have like Giolito looking like a number one or number two. And then you have like, you know, Lynn's struggling, Cease is struggling, Kopech struggling, Clevenger is, is limited. Uh, like nobody else is stepping up in terms of like, who do you definitely want starting a postseason game? And they don't have that other guy yet uh, who's allowing a cease who's off his game to be hidden. Postseason? <laughs> yeah, playoffs. Well, I mean, the White Sox are 10-22. and 22. They did have a three-game winning streak. They finally won their first series of the 2023 season. I will be joining our friends Dan Bernstein and Lawrence Holmes on 670 The Score on Friday. That's going to be around 11 a.m. Central Time. And I already know they're going to be asking me this question. What did we learn from this White Sox series win against the Minnesota Twins? And here's a preview of my answer, podcast listeners. I learned that the American League Central is worse than I thought. That's what I have learned. Mm -hmm. Because the hysteria that's going on in New York... And I think it's a combination that the, both the Yankees and Mets, they're not, they don't have blazing starts to the season. And it is very clear on who the strong teams are in both the American and National League East divisions, and that is Tampa and Atlanta. And yeah, if I was a Yankees or Mets fan, I'd be sweating a little bit with just how well those two ball clubs in Tampa and Atlanta are playing this season. But I think the Yankees, if they were in the American League Central, Sure, their last place in the AL East, they'd be like half a game behind the Minnesota Twins as we're recording this uh, to lead the American League Central. So that's why I, I just find it a bit humorous and just the, the hysteria that's going on regarding the Yankees. But it also just points out, and I think even Jeff Passett at ESPN was just tweeting out just numbers and data that just back up on how terrible the AL Central is. I think the AL Central as a division has a winning percentage below 400 outside of the division <laughs> right now, uh, which is both baffling and believable. And I walking out of the Wednesday night win for the White Sox, going down the tunnel and walking home, I had the thought that the Minnesota Twins are not that good of a team. The pitching is believable. And... I think defensively they're solid enough where on the run prevention side they could limit teams to three to four runs. This offense is incredibly top-heavy. 
for the Minnesota Twins, and it is not consistent. And I think they could go weeks really struggling offensively to help support this pitching staff. And maybe they're a team that hovers around 83-85 wins. But that might be good enough to win the American League Central, Jim. Like, that's what I have learned after this series win for the White Sox is not so much about the White Sox, but as a whole for the American League Central because, my gosh, look at how Cleveland is starting. We don't think highly of Detroit and Kansas City. Like, this could be one of the worst divisions that we have seen maybe in the last decade in Major League Baseball. Yeah, very likely. Um, You know, the Twins, I think, are... Decent, but when you look at the injury to Mally, when you look at Yomaeda being delicate, when you look at Joe Ryan running out of gas at 87 pitches, like he's somebody who's he's a really good starter, but not used to the grind or not used to being um, worked like a top end starter. Like you know the Rocco Baldelli and the whole Wes Johnson era, they were much like you know five to six innings, two times through, never a third time. Uh, if if we can help it and let's use the bullpen, the bullpen got overworked and starters you know, went by the wayside and just all kind of fell apart on Johnson. And uh, now we're seeing a little bit more depth in the rotation. Like Bailey Ober is a nice extra starter to have. Um, yeah, Louis Varlin looked like a nice extra starter, like in the Davis Martin role of filling in when you need it. Like those are good guys to have around. Like that's that's solid depth. But when it comes to like the top end stuff, carrying a team papering over some deficiencies like I'm not convinced that they can hold up over a long season because Mally got hurt last year and he got hurt this year and you know Maeda's had Tommy John surgery and and you know the other starters have you know nobody's really come close to like 170 180 innings you know Sonny Gray has done it before but he's also had some some ups and downs when it comes to availability so yeah I know what their strength is uh, right now at the rotation it's just can they maintain that strength because they haven't before in case of like Gray and Maeda and such, like they're on the older side, or like you know they're they're you know they're not on the ascent the way that Ryan is, and and you'd expect Ryan to have to build up his workload like all these other guys, are guys who have been around the block, and you wonder if they can hold it together. So, I can see them hitting tough times. Um, we've already seen the Guardians have tough times, uh, you know, with their rotation. Uh, they just optioned Zach Plesac down, and you know he looked like somebody who's going to be a fixture. So. You know, they're having their own identity crisis a little bit. And yeah, the White Sox, like digging such a hole is what's uh, troubling about this. And losing a game they could have won, being six back instead of eight back. Like they need those wins when you've dug that big of a hole. But the reason I don't count them out is just because this division could all be just, you know, have a hard time escaping the tractor beam of 500 and, and getting away from like an 83 win projection just because, you know, the, the, Schedule is more balanced, so every team has to face the other strong teams more often. You can't uh, pad your record with facing the Royals and Tigers a bunch of times, or the White Sox. If the White Sox are indeed this bad, like it's, uh, there isn't a shortcut to 85 wins the way there was before. To where like you get to October and think like, oh, the Twins are good, or the White Sox, you know, they can beat the Astros, or you know, the Guardians can can you know, slug with the Yankees, and you know, it it gets tough to. Uh, to hold up once you realize like oh, every inning is against a good team, you see what the shortcomings are. Yeah, it's just, I, I know it's May and we got a long way to go and there's the trade deadline, teams can improve. But I think the teams right now, if we have to look ahead in the crystal ball, they're going to have to improve the most. Again, we we listed them. They're the teams in the American League East. Every team's above 500. They're all going to have to make impact moves before the trade deadline to stay ahead of one another. 
the National League East. I mean, the Miami Marlins are being pesky right now. We know that Los Angeles, as far as the Dodgers especially, they're never quiet at the trade deadline. Same thing with the San Diego Padres. So I just don't see any of these teams drastically getting better as the season progresses, even like maybe from a White Sox perspective. So the bad news is that the White Sox are still 12 games below 500. They're 10 and 22. The good news, the division's bad. (laughs) It's a lot worse Mm -hmm. than what we thought. So while we, before the season, kind of mocked the projections being like 85 wins to win the American League Central, there's just no way. Someone will get to 90, 92. It's no. None of these teams are 90-win teams. So (laughs) maybe that's where the White Sox miracle happens is that they win the American League Central with an 83-79 and record and uh, get swept in the playoffs. Maybe that's the the best-case scenario we could look at right now. Yeah, or it's like the 1994 AL West all over again. Oh yeah, what was the what was Texas like? Seven games below five hundred before the strike happened. Ten it was games. Bad. Ten games below five hundred. They're fifty-two and sixty-two. Oh lord, oh lord. All right, Jim and I got to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsors. But coming after the break, let's talk about the White Sox next series in Cincinnati. As we'll be here in Cincinnati to watch them face the Reds next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, Jim and I will be here in Cincinnati along with our friends from the 108, Cherezy, B-Flow, My Sox Summer. And it's looking like uh, at least another 150 White Sox fans that will be meeting up with us, especially for the Friday and Saturday games. If you're watching on TV or if you got game uh, tickets for the games, we will be in Section 108 or if you got game, uh, <laughs> you get, we'll be in section 108, which is right by the left field foul pole. So opposite of Gary T. Ray Field for this three-game series between the White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. The Cincinnati Reds are 13-8 and eight coming into this series. They are 9-6 and six at home, though. They play much better at home than they do on the road. They lost their last game, but in their last 10 games, the Reds are 6-4. and four. Offensively, Nothing to write home about. This is a bottom 10 unit for Major League Baseball. The Reds are 22nd in Team OPS. They're at 679. They're in the bottom three, though, when it comes to team home runs. They've hit just 21 home runs this year in 31 games. And because of that low home run total, they rank 27th in Major League Baseball in team slugging at 357. So not a lot of power from the Cincinnati Reds lineup. On the pitching side, it's... A tale of two stories here for the Cincinnati Reds. Their staff ERA is about five. It's at 4.98, which is 25th in Major League Baseball. On the starting front, the starting rotation for the Reds, staff ERA is 5.91. Now, that's 28th in Major League Baseball. The bullpen is more than two runs better than the starters. The bullpen is a 3.79 ERA to start the season. That is 14th in Major League Baseball. So the White Sox here, that's already one big storyline. Can they score against the Reds starting rotation? And the probable pitchers for this series, you're going to have Lance Lynn take the ball on Friday night 
for the Chicagoans. This first pitch is going to be at 5.40 p.m. Central Time, 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time. Hunter Green is going to make the start for the Cincinnati Reds, which is going to be great to be in attendance for, Jim, because Green is one of the up-and-comers in Major League Baseball. Saturday, again, another 5.40 p.m. Central Time, 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time start. Mike Clevenger will take the ball for the White Sox against Nick Lodolo, who is a lefty for the Reds. And then on Sunday, can Michael Kopech repeat his excellent performance at home on the road this time? He'll be going up against Luke Weaver, of the Reds. That game's going to start at 3.10 p.m. Central Time. It's a later start on Sunday because of the Flying Pig Marathon that's happening in Cincinnati this weekend. Jim, as I broke broke it down here as far as the series, like the big numbers, obviously one, I can't wait to see you and meet up with everybody in Cincinnati. But I feel like for the White Sox, if they're going to win another series, this Friday night game between Lance Lynn and Hunter Green I think could be an excellent pitching matchup, especially if Lance Lynn continues to throw the ball better, especially early in the start. And I can't wait to see what Hunter Green brings against this White Sox lineup. When I saw the probable pitchers lined up with Hunter Green going first, I was like, yeah, all right. Like that's, that's something you want to be in attendance for. Even with the White Sox shell, I'm like, great. We're in attendance for the White Sox offense doing well. But if Hunter Green happens to look awesome, you just hope that, Lance Lynn keeps it close and you still feel like you got your money's worth. So as a baseball fan, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, I was looking at the, the splits and the Cincinnati Reds uh, rotation has given up the second most hits while pitching the second fewest innings. Like that's just, you know, Hunter Green's good. The rest of the rotation, eminently gettable. They're allowing a 311 average. <laughs> That, that is the highest, like, that's even worse than Oakland. Like, it's hard to be worse than Oakland right. in any one category this year, but Cincinnati is worse than Oakland in that department. Like, they're okay at suppressing homers. That's why they're not getting absolutely crushed. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of home runs. But hits, yeah. Uh, the White Sox offense should, like, this should be, like, a good test for, like, Lenin Sosa if he plays. Or... Uh, just the bottom of the order in general, Elvis Andres, like the guys who've been scuffling to to get some uh, get some reps against guys who might not be more meaningfully advanced than they are. Like you know, Lodolo's trying to stick, so he's kind of like Sosa, like they're kind of peers in that regard. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, because you know, as you mentioned, and as we've talked about before, though the White Sox offense does not hit relievers well. And Cincinnati actually has like a decent bullpen. It's just a matter of like how many innings they've had to cover because the rotation has been so bad. So like, I guess one of the takeaways I should say from the Minnesota series, like hitting Jorge Lopez, that was cool. Like Lopez came into the, uh, you know, series looking untouchable and the White Sox touched him. So if there's regression to be had by Reds relievers, like the way Lopez, you know, couldn't go the entire season without allowing a run, you know, perhaps that's a case where the White Sox can help that out a little bit, but really the work has to be done in the first four innings, I think. Green aside, in order for us to feel any better about this team uh, once they leave Cincinnati. Yeah, because if this becomes a battle of bullpens late, you got to have more faith in the Reds' bullpen than the White Sox bullpen right now. Even though they've been better. Like the the White Sox, that's that's kind of what's frustrating about this series is like they could have swept, and if they did sweep, like we would have felt 
a little bit better about the bullpen, certainly. Like Lambert got yeah. straightened out. Uh, you know, Santos, uh, he did a good job in his first like real tough situation. Middleton uh, closed out a game with minimal issue. Like, you know, Lopez, I think, is like the big question mark because Griffal keeps throwing him out against like the best hitters on the other team when I don't think he's that guy. And then he had Alex Colome coming in and pitching the eighth inning of a uh, you know, high leverage situation for some reason, like when he's probably washed up. So like that I didn't get. And then when he came in again, like it was a 12th inning, all the other relievers had been used. Like, yeah, I, I get it. But Colomay uh, in the previous situation did not get that. But the other relievers, like the guys you figure are going to be around, they're all looking better. Now it's just a matter of like, can the White Sox actually provide a four run lead? So like, you know, Keenan Middleton doesn't have to pitch and Jimmy Lambert doesn't have to pitch every day. Like they can go to their low leverage guys. They can go to Sammy Peralta. They can go to Colome, whoever's in Colome's spot to get through an inning or two. Like just, they've, they've played so many tight games that uh, the relievers are good, but then they get overexposed or they get, you know, they, they get run down a little bit or a team sees them three days in a row and just like, eh, they're not as special anymore. So here's hoping that, you know, the White Sox can build a lead to where, uh, Griffal can ease up. He can breathe a little bit. He doesn't have to go for every possible substitution and they take it easy on the guy. Yeah. I think you hit it right in the head, Jim, that the first four innings is going to be critical for the white Sox, especially offensively. They should score Saturday and Sunday. There, there's really no excuse. They should be able to put up some runs to help support Clevenger and Kopech. Lynn's got a tough test, man. He cannot dig the white Sox a hole, especially against Hunter green. And uh, that, that's going to be the tricky one. But if the White Sox can find a way to win on Friday, which on paper I would say the Reds would be the favorite in that game, then you're looking at another opportunity to possibly sweep. And after the horrendous April that the White Sox had, the first week in May, if you can go at least 4-2, and two, okay, that, you're starting to build better vibes. And then you got a four-game road series in Kansas City, and that team's got they, they, they got a lot of problems going on with the Royals right now. Mm -hmm. Like, that could be another winnable road series before you come home. And then you got the Astros, in which the Houston Astros are playing much better baseball as of late, uh, even though Jose Breu might not be uh, during that Mother's Day weekend. So I still think, like, this is... They got to stack wins when you're 12 games below 500. When you got, if you double your win total, you're still below 500 in this part of the season in early May, you got to stack wins. And this is another series that I think the white Sox can win, but they just got to prove it, especially the offense. The offense has to take advantage against this really poor red starting pitching. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, four and two does not sound impressive. They have to go four and two for a while. Uh, it, it, so it's, you know, but, Pedro Grafal thinking about seven to 10 days like that. That's going to come in handy right now, because if you look at the standings as a whole, uh, 10, 22, and when they were seven and 21 and 250 winning percentage, like, yeah, that, that looks daunting. So, um, yeah, four and two is fine. Um, you had to put the blinders on, I think in order to, uh, not get depressed, but you know, that's the situation. Yeah, I got to start building positive vibes somewhere. And I know at least for White Sox fans, there's going to be a lot of positive vibes as we all hang out this weekend in Cincinnati. So for those that are making the trip that listen to the podcast, maybe as you're flying to Cincinnati or you're driving out to Cincinnati, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. This will conclude 
this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Jim, can't wait to see you in Cincinnati and can't wait to see everybody this weekend for the White Sox and Red Series. Again, follow us on our social media accounts for the latest updates as far as the pregame and postgame meetups. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me at Sox Machine underscore Josh for both our Twitter and Instagram accounts as well if you're not able to make it and this is the first time you discover the socks machine podcast you can listen to the socks machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as spotify and apple music we also upload all of our podcast episodes into our youtube channel which please subscribe at youtube.com slash socks machine if you enjoy your, our work and want more you can get more by becoming a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socks machine where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content, they get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website, and when we have new Socks Machine swag in the Socks Machine store, the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your own for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Thank you.